and Carol had been married for 66 years. About 17 years ago, Carol began to show signs of memory problems. She's since been diagnosed as having Alzheimer's disease. The illness has progressed slowly. Only in the last year did it become apparent that Carol could no longer live safely at home with Larry caring for her. In this episode of Lifespan, Larry and his daughter Madeline, who are both physicians, talk about Carol and the difficulties that Alzheimer's disease presents to everyone touched by the illness. Even with Larry and Madeline's medical expertise, they had a difficult time finding adequate services for Carol. For families without medical expertise and without significant financial resources, difficulties are magnified. Madeline begins the story by describing her mother. My mother was probably always the um, smartest person in the room. Um, She always amazed me at how she knew something about everything, and it was not generally superficial knowledge. Um, She had in-depth knowledge and was capable in so many areas. But then she'd surprise me and be completely inept at something, particularly mechanical things that... (laughs) That always sort of amused me that she couldn't figure out how to unlock and open a window, but she, you know, could learn Hebrew in a week. A lot of my friends were intimidated by her, and then other friends just loved to sit down and chat with her because she was always interesting and interested in them. Um, She, if my brother and I were um, fighting, my mother sometimes would she'd yell at us and then we'd look at each other and say, was she speaking English? Because I didn't understand a word she said because her vocabulary was so absolutely incredible. Carol had an impressive career. She was a university English professor as well as a university administrator. She was in charge of people at work um, as chairman of the department and then head of a division and then dean of a college. And um, she always was just impressive and classy and elegant and um, put together. So her this change is absolutely devastating. And I'm sure it is for anybody, but um, just the contrast is absolutely stark. Larry explains how he and Carol met when he was a medical student and she was living in New York where they both grew up. I had a neighbor in the apartment house uh, where I lived, and uh, every time I'd see her in the elevator when I was in college, she'd say, I have just a girl for you. But he put the neighbor off, and after graduating from college, he headed for medical school in Baltimore. I came back after my first year, and uh, by then, all of my friends, college, high school, all those had sort of disappeared. I didn't know where they were. And she said to me, again in the elevator, I have just a girl for you. And I said, okay, give me her phone number. And uh, we started dating. And uh, it was sort of an instantaneous (laughs) relationship within roughly a year from the time we first met. We had our wedding and we were married. Um, So you you were in medical school at this time, and was Carol in graduate school? She had just graduated from college. She she was an English major, 
at uh, Cornell, she was very bright, very intellectual and serious, uh, but fun. They married in 1956 and moved to Baltimore, where Larry was still in medical school at Johns Hopkins University. After the move, Carol applied to Johns Hopkins to earn a graduate degree in English. She applied and was interviewed by the chairman of the department, who informed her that although she was quite acceptable, uh, he was not taking any women that year uh, because he claimed the high rate of attrition of, uh, of women. It turned out that was a complete lie. Um, because we actually got to know many of the graduate students in English at Hopkins. Um, and uh, it turned out that the high rate of attrition was not women. It was men. A whole bunch of men had had quit the program. He was not a nice chairman. And what he really needed was to replace the men. <laughs> That's why he wasn't taking any women. And so she decided she would apply to Catholic University in Washington, which actually had a good English department, quite classic English department. And so she decided she would do her master's degree there. Carol finished her master's degree in nine months. Larry was in his third year of medical school. Carol then taught uh, high school English for uh, the next what would have been two years. Larry interned in pediatrics, and during his internship year, Carol became pregnant with their first child. And when the school found out that she was pregnant, they said she could not continue to be a teacher. I mean, she wasn't even showing. Firing women when they became pregnant was very common in the United States until the U.S. Congress passed the Pregnancy Discrimination Act in 1978. After Carol's firing and the completion of Larry's internship year, they moved back to New York, where Larry worked at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx, a new medical school at the time. And in fact, it turned out to be a very exciting place to be, and I was delighted to be there. And Carol gave birth to their first child, Alex. After about two years in the Bronx, we bought a little house in Yonkers. And by that time, their second child, Madeline, had been born. Carol enrolled at New York University to work toward a Ph.D. She began her studies with courses on Saturdays. That became a rather pleasant time for all of us, which the children actually remember very fondly. We would drive Carol down to NYU and drop her off, and then I would go off with the children, and uh, we would uh, do interesting things each Saturday, we'd go to a museum, we'd go to some uh, something, we'd go to a park, we'd go to the zoo. Your career and Carol's career really developed in tandem. Yes. And you supported each other completely. And we've, we've done everything in our lives until now when Carol is in uh, memory care. We literally lived our lives together. Um her research, which, you know, originally she thought she was interested in sort of classic English uh, literature, um, but it sort of merged into an interest in uh, science and medical writing. We did a lot together. 
We traveled together. I went to her meetings. She went to my meetings, um, both in the U.S. and overseas. As a pediatrician, Larry subspecialized in neonatology. Carol completed her Ph.D. in English at NYU in three years with the help of a Danforth Fellowship. She wrote her thesis on the literature depicting the immigrant experience, and then she began teaching at a small Catholic college in White Plains, New York. Eventually, she became chair of the English department. She wrote a well-received book about the literary style of famed science writer Rachel Carson. Then, in 1980, Larry received an offer to work at the University of Chicago. And uh, we went off to Chicago. Larry worked in the Department of Pediatrics. He and Carol continued to do everything together. We have always shopped for clothing, for furniture, for uh, groceries, uh, anything. We always went together, and our whole lives were together. And, you know, our offices were next to each other in the house. We always knew what each other was writing and doing, and we helped each other. You know, we, we, you know, we counseled each other. Eventually, Larry chaired the pediatrics department at the University of Chicago. When they first moved to Chicago... Carol worked for several years as an assistant dean at a state college on the north side of the city. Then she became a dean at Purdue's Hammond, Indiana campus. For five years, she was the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, and she, she enjoyed that. And she didn't really enjoy teaching nearly as much as she enjoyed being dean. Carol began to write another book, this one about Mary Putnam Jacoby, one of the most influential figures in 19th century medicine. And she's the one who discovered what polio was, that it was damage to the anterior horn cells in the spine. And she was a neuropathologist. Mary Putnam Jacoby was also the wife of Abraham Jacoby, known to this day as the father of American pediatrics. Dissatisfied with her medical education in the U.S., she also studied in Paris. She graduated from medical school with a really fine education. And that's how she became a neuropathologist as well as a physician. And she was incredibly brilliant. But Carol never finished the book on Jacoby, despite amassing mountains of material. And looking back, Larry thinks that was the first sign Carol was having problems with her memory. By then, Carol and Larry had retired. They were living on a small ranch in California while remaining active in their professions. They also owned a nearby condo that they had visited for years when they lived and worked in Chicago. 17 years ago, thereabouts, she had written two chapters, and she was writing a third chapter. And she said to me, I, I can't finish this. I, I'm missing pieces, uh, things about their life together, particularly the relationship of Mary and Abraham. She just stopped writing. And at the time, I thought, well, okay, maybe there is some, she's really missing some pieces, and she just can't figure it out, but she'll figure it out. And, but she never went back to it. I mean, she didn't even go back to the office. You know, we have an office over the barn, and that was where she was doing her writing. She never went back. I would urge her to go back. I'd say, oh, go back, try to see if you can write some more. Uh, 
and she never did. She just stopped. Carol and Larry had expected a cognitive decline to occur at some point in Carol's life. Both of her parents had dementia. Her father had classic Alzheimer's, and he, he didn't last terribly long. And her mother probably had vascular dementia. Because of this family history, Madeline had discussed dementia with her mother, most memorably when they went to visit Carol's mother, Madeline's grandmother, when Madeline was a medical resident. One of the most poignant moments I've ever had with my mother was when my grandmother was deep into her dementia. Um, I, I was very, very, very close to my mother's parents. They were essentially my second set of parents, so... I would go visit them with them without my parents and um, and my so I was down visiting with my mother just the two of us were there um, with my grandmother my grandfather had already died and um, my mother turned to me and said if I ever get like this shoot me so yes she fully expected that she was gonna develop dementia just like her parents, and um, she never wanted to be like that. But Carol's cognitive decline was slow. Long after she stopped writing the book on Mary Putnam Jacoby, she was still contributing to the household in the ways she always had, cooking, paying bills, and investing. She had done so well over the years investing, in fact, that the three money managers Larry and Carol consulted after he retired all said the same thing. You don't need us. You've done it all. There's nothing we can do that will be any better than what you have done. So just continue doing what you're doing. <laughs> How she knew what to buy and sell, she was extraordinary. And she had no training in this at all. And she did it until probably now, it's probably about seven years ago, when I realized she wasn't paying some bills and things were getting a little mixed up. I asked Carol's daughter Madeline when she saw the first signs that her mother had memory problems. You know, it's hard to say because it was it was really subtle at first. She'd start forgetting things or repeating questions. But she, like my grandmother, kept it together um, for a long time because she was so good at covering up. She'd tell you all kinds of stories that sounded completely feasible, and they were just total made-up stories. There was a really funny story. So my mother was brought up very well and was very socially apt and cultured, and so she was a very good hostess. And we were having dinner um, with some of their friends. Somehow the subject of hunting came up. And my mother said something about, oh, yes, you know, we'd, we'd go out and shoot guns and and uh, go hunting. And, you know, this is a, a woman who grew up in Brooklyn, has never <laughs> camped in her life, has never held a gun. And so we're looking at each other and and my father was sort of egging her on. And my dad said, well, what kind of guns did you, were you shooting? 
well, handguns. And then she said, and we used to go hunting. And he said, well, what did you hunt for? And she said, well, we hunted elk. <laughs> and he said, really? And what kind of gun did you hunt elk with? Well, a pistol. <laughs> oh, my God. We were just dying. We're like, Dad, stop. But it was really funny. And But she had to be part of this conversation. Um, so she really covered it up for a long time. It became really apparent um, probably well, she stopped doing their finances probably seven years ago, eight years ago. And she couldn't really read books anymore. Um, she'd forget what she was reading and she'd pretend she was reading. And there were always bookmarks in multiple books, but she never really got through them. And we kind of noticed that stuff. She also um, would appropriate things. My grandmother always went and got her hair and nails done every week. My mother never, ever had her nails polished or had her hair done. She would tell people, oh, yes, you know, I go get my hair and nails done every week. Carol also began to claim that she baked regularly, but she had never baked. Madeline baked. I started baking as a kid because my mother never baked. So I was the one who baked the cookies and other stuff. She cooked, but she never baked. So it was just funny. She would just tell us these things that were, that we knew were untrue, but nobody who, you know, if you didn't know her really well, you didn't know they weren't true. <laughs> and, I, and I bet that she was as equally interesting and charming as she had always been coming up with these stories that were completely. Oh yeah. People uh, had no clue. So even up to, you know, a year ago or a year and a half ago, um, people had no clue how bad she was because they'd see her at concerts or theater or, and they'd just chat briefly and she could be as charming and she still knew the, um, you know, how to be polite and, um, and social. Did you feel like your mother was aware of what was happening to her? Did she ever express fear at that point? Not fear, um, frustration. Um, there were times when she'd say, oh, I'm not remembering as well as I used to. Um, but most of the time she was really not self-aware. And um, she'd be more inappropriate than anything. My mother, who never really swore, started swearing a lot. She'd say, make comments about people loudly in restaurants and, oh, that woman is so fat. Can oh. you believe it? Or you know, look at that woman's hair color. It's like, oh, my God, I'm shut. And she was super argumentative because she, she was always right in her lifetime. And so when she had memory loss, she still thought that she was always right. Um, but she wasn't. And so if you corrected her, she'd get very angry. And she still was always right. The Alzheimer's Society people actually told us to stop correcting her. <laughs> like, just let it go. <laughs> Which is hard to do. I asked Larry what happened when Carol was medically assessed, shortly after he first suspected her memory was declining. She had a formal assessment, very extensive uh, psychological evaluation. I, uh, I was there when she had it done. 
and uh, and then she had a neurologist who was a memory uh, person, memory expert, who she saw regularly, and um, uh, he he gave us some medicines which didn't work anyway. Um, nothing does, and uh, she continued to see him about twice a year, uh, but. Uh, she clearly was getting a little worse each time we went there. You know, for the first few years, I probably denied it. And then after a few years, maybe three or four years, I said, yes, she certainly has memory problems. And I repeatedly would ask her about her memory. She always denied it to the very end. She said her memory was perfect. There was nothing wrong with her. She was, I mean, she even when she was severe, before she went into the memory care place, she was still talking, and she was able to uh, dress herself and wash herself more or less. Um, but she denied everything. She said there was nothing wrong with her. At some point, Larry realized that it was unsafe for Carol to drive. So rather than argue with her about the need to give up her driver's license, which is one of the most difficult conversations to have as someone ages, when she received her driver's license renewal notice, he showed her the paperwork and told her to fill it out. And he gave her the Department of Motor Vehicles booklet so she could study for the driver's exam. And he told her that when she was ready, she should call to make an appointment to renew her license. Drop-ins for renewal weren't allowed. She never called. And so eventually... Her license expired. She never got a renewal, and it just sort of ended. Before she went into the memory care place, she was still talking, and she was able to uh, dress herself and wash herself more or less. Um, but she denied everything. She said there was nothing wrong with her. I asked Madeline to describe the conversations that she and her husband, Mark, had with her father about her mother's care. Mark and I would, you know, say, you know, it's getting to the point where it's hard on you. And my mother would fall and my father would call us and we'd go racing over there. And a couple of times she kind of got lost on, on their property. She never left their property, but he couldn't find her. And Mark and I would drive up and down the street, making sure she hadn't left the property. And one time he couldn't get her out of the bathtub. Another time he couldn't get her off of the toilet. And, and he'd have us come over and help him. And um, so we kept saying, you know, Dad, maybe you need to think more seriously about um, about getting her somewhere where she can get proper care. And he kept saying, no, you know, I can do this. I can do this. And then finally... He said, okay, we had this conference call and he said, okay, I'm ready to go look at places. And I think it was more the fear of what these places were like. Um, and once he saw that they were okay, then he was ready for her to be in skilled care. You know, I kept telling him, you're, you're not trained to do this. And I noticed that my father looked really worn and tired and, and it was clear it wasn't doing good things for his health. Well, he was already 88 and he's trying to lift her out of the bathtub. It's like, that doesn't work. 
Now, I know your dad kept her at home as long as he possibly could. Too long. Madeline described the first facility they moved her mother into. I think we picked for the wrong reasons. It was a place next door to their condominium, so we thought it would be really convenient. Initially, it seemed okay, but they really didn't have people who knew how to take care of people with memory issues. They didn't have enough activities. They didn't know how to get people engaged. They let her sit in her room by herself a lot. And then one day, there was a man that irritated her because he hummed all the time and he hummed off key. And my mother um, was always pretty opinionated, a little bit of a snob, and was trained in voice. (laughs) And so um, this really irritated her. Finally, one day, I guess she just kind of swung at him and knocked his glasses off. And then he pushed her and she fell. And then they took her into an office and she was being belligerent. So they called the police. Well, they tried calling for uh, an ambulance and they said, no, you know, you don't need an ambulance. And so long story short, they ended up um, getting her admitted to the geriatric psych unit. She spent the night in the emergency room strapped down to a gurney because they didn't have a room, so they kept her in the hallway and sedated her. And then the next day, they admitted her to the geriatric psych unit. They just kept upping the meds, upping the meds, because she kept trying to escape. She would get angry at them. And so ultimately, she had what they called a sinkable episode. They thought that maybe she had a stroke, so they sent her down to the emergency room again, where they did the million-dollar workup and nothing was wrong with her. They, so then they got her readmitted to the psych unit, and I s- told them, you know, I think this is the meds. you got to hold off on the meds. Don't give her any more of the meds. And they did. She was out for probably at least 24 hours. She was, you couldn't wake her up. Larry and Madeline immediately began to look for another facility for Carol. We made all the arrangements and they actually had her transported there by ambulance. We got her a new doctor. She hasn't received any further psych meds, but interestingly, she stopped talking. After that, she's virtually not talked at all. And she had been talking before that. So I'm not sure what the meds did, but she is almost completely nonverbal now. Think of what it's like for families who don't have a medical background to to battle uh, situations like this. I've thought of that many times because, and my my father tends not to argue. Um, I do, I am my mother's daughter, um, and I will not keep quiet. So he let me do the arguing I looked at the dosing, you know, that we call them medical restraints, and that's essentially what they were doing. They couldn't keep her from trying to get out of the unit and being difficult, so they medically restrained her. I asked Larry if Carol ever understood why she was leaving home. 
I'm not sure I ever tried to really explain to her why she was there, except for the fact that it was important that she get better care and I couldn't care for her. I don't think she ever acknowledged or recognized why she was there. Larry and Madeline are happy with Carol's current living situation at a memory care center. A facility specializing in memory care has made all the difference. The whole philosophy is that it is like home. Since she's been there, from the first day she was there, she was completely comfortable. It has a large outdoor garden, so I take her for a walk when I'm there. Madeline does that too. The whole philosophy there, everybody gets showered and fully dressed. Their hair is cut. They have a podiatrist who comes in and clips toenails. Uh, They clip fingernails. Um, Everybody looks nice. Some people are in wheelchairs because they can't walk. Uh, Many people can walk, but they are in lounge chairs much of the day, and that's what Carol is at now. She's at that stage where she often falls down, and uh, they won't tie people in. They don't believe in them. They will have an alarm on if somebody gets up who they think is in danger of falling, so they'll know they got up and they'll go over and take care of them. And they have a living room, and there's activities in the living room all day long. And they're very clever about the beds even. The beds can be higher, but when people are more likely to fall, they lower the beds down almost to the floor. And then they put pads on both sides of the bed. So should they roll out of bed, they'll fall onto a pad and they won't get hurt. Yet despite the positive move to another place, this one specializing in memory care, Carol's decline has been precipitous since her disastrous time in the geriatric psych unit. She was eating, she was feeding herself, and she was eating, and she liked the food there, and she ate. And then one day I was there and they said, she can't chew or she chews, but she can't swallow. So they sit there and they feed her. Her whole meal comes, everything, meat, vegetables, potato, whatever, dessert, all comes pureed. She wants to eat. She's hungry, but she will not feed herself. Physically, I think she's capable of it, but she she just can't put it together in her head. If she ever stopped eating and refused the food they're giving her, they wouldn't force feed her, would they? No, they would not. The orders are she has a do not resuscitate order, which she actually made clear early on that was what she wanted. Uh, and because uh, you know, she knew what her parents went through. I mean, early on, she said, that that's not the life I want. I asked Larry to explain how Carol's illness has shaped his life. I try to lead my, my life the way I always did. First of all, we're, we're very fortunate. We have this house and ranch, and I was able to let her do a lot herself without watching her because we got her an Apple Watch that has its own phone system. She always wore the wristwatch, and I could call her and find out where she was, and I could track her also, because she'd wander off, and we have seven acres, and she'd go off where the uh, fruit trees were, or she'd wander down the road a bit, 
I could do my woodworking, my gardening, my writing. And having Madeline and her husband Mark move nearby about four years ago really improved Larry's ability to care for Carol. Having her here helps to make decisions. And that's how the decision to go into memory care was made. We did it together, and Mark participates also, her husband. I mean, he's, he's really like a son to me, and, and he treats me like I'm his father. We were eating together, uh, the four of us, for several years. And I would do the cooking, or Madeline and Mark would do the cooking, um, and Carol was there. Now that Carol was not here, we continue to eat. The three of us eat together probably three or four times a week. I've always felt comfortable in in taking care of Carol. I love her, and she's I, she's very special. And we had this environment, the house, the ranch. I never left her. That was one of the issues: is I was with her all the time. And you know, for some people, that's a that's a big burden. But fortunately, I was able in this environment, in this house and ranch, I was able to do what I wanted to do, and I could still watch her, and I still knew where she was, and she never got into any trouble. The two of you had such a strong relationship built over such a long period of time. So many people define Alzheimer's as loss, and that is completely understandable. But I think, you know, your story is so interesting because you also describe both of you having such um, successful lives individually and as partners, that's why it didn't end up being traumatic. I mean, that's my interpretation of it. Oh, I think you're right. I mean, that it, it just happened very, very gradually, and we adjusted, and we both adjusted our lives to meet what needs we had. I mean, we did it from the very beginning of right. our marriage. And you did it without resentment. It was something that you both did. You just did together. Right. Except in some ways, your world has widened because you're, I mean, your daughter, obviously your children have always been an important part of your life, but, you know, your daughter now is also a very important part of your support system as well. Oh, oh, absolutely. Larry had also prepared himself for Carol's illness. I knew what was going to happen. I mean, I knew she was going to end up in a memory care place. I'd gone to lectures from the Alzheimer's Society on Zoom mainly, um, very good talks, very good talks. And I learned a lot about how the brain deteriorates and what's happening and what to expect. Madeline describes her mother's life today and the experience of Alzheimer's from a daughter's perspective. You know, having her in a place where she's safe and she's well cared for has been a huge relief, particularly to my father, who has now resumed his life. And we actually even talked him into traveling with us abroad, which I thought he'd never do again. So it freed him up to resume his life, which is great. It makes it easier on us because we're not getting called for emergencies all the time. And, um, and we know she's safe as well. But basically you grieve over and over and over. And I think we're all at the point where she's essentially a shell of who she was. Madeline described it as incremental grieving. My brother and his wife and all the grandchildren, I think have 
gotten to the point where we've all grieved. The person there is no longer our mother or grandmother. So we've, we've essentially done our grieving. So, you know, now we're just sort of in a holding pattern and she's gradually failing very slowly. I'm sure much more slowly than she would like um, if she knew. Um, but she's basically a healthy person. So she's almost 87 and, you know, she's had a great life and she's just sitting there. So, so it's most of the time it's, you know, I can look at her and say, well, that's not my mother. And it's, you know, it is what it is and go on with my life. Sometimes I get um, very sad. So you go back and forth and it's probably the worst way to die. I think, or one of them. I, it doesn't involve pain so much, but boy, I always think about who my mother was and things she said to me through my life. And if she saw herself now, she would be mortified and pissed as hell that she's still alive. I know that. She did not want to live long enough to be like this. So that makes it hard, but it is, you know, but at some point you, you understand that this is not the person you loved and you just kind of go through the motions for the most part and um, live your life. You've described a family scenario where you really were able to care for your mother in the best possible way because you have the means to do it. And there are a lot of families that don't, that are in the same situation and don't quite have the resources that your family has. We don't quite have the resources that other wealthy countries do to help families when they're in crisis situations like this. Right. The Alzheimer's Society was really excellent in helping support and that that is free of charge then they were wonderful but for people who don't have the means to to be able to have their loved one in a facility like my mother is in it's very expensive and um, I don't know how people manage because you can't leave somebody alone at home it's expensive to have somebody come in. Um, if you put them just in a nursing home that's possibly covered by Medicare, I don't think they get the same kind of care. They probably get medicated. It's very sad that, that everybody doesn't have access to memory care facilities and places where their loved one could be cared for with dignity and, and try to preserve their comfort and quality of life for as long as possible. I feel for families who don't have options. Um, and thank goodness for groups like the Alzheimer's Society who can try to help find resources and things to help people who don't have the same resources. You asked if my mother was afraid and she was, and she thought it was inevitable that she would have um, dementia of some sort. And uh, I have to admit that I worry about it too. 
Um, my father-in-law had memory loss and my mother and my husband and I both think about it and hope that we're not gonna end up with dementia but you know there's a good possibility and when I forget something I forget a name or I you know can't remember something I go oh no it's starting Madeline describes her dad's life now. He's still a social butterfly. And when we moved up here, then we met people. And so now he has a whole new social circle here. And um, so he's very busy socially and totally enjoying life. And uh, so he's, he's doing, he's doing great. And we, Mark and I joke that we're his plus one. So (laughs) the three of us go everywhere together. And fortunately, Mark adores my dad as well. So life is good. Larry anticipated Carol's dementia, given her family history. It's been hard, but he was able to plan it every step as he always has throughout his life. I used to put a sign on my door when I was probably 10 or 12 years old, uh, you know, Lawrence Gartner, pediatrician. Really? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, I, and my life went exactly the way I thought it would go. <laughs> I didn't know exactly where I'd end up in terms of hospitals or schools, but, but I knew pretty much what my life was going to be. And I knew what my retirement was going to be because we made it happen that way. We chose to go to a place where we would have the land and the gardening and the uh, open spaces in a rural area. Uh, And it was what we wanted. Carol had very specific ideas about what the house had to be like, down to the fact that it had to have an overhanging back area that had a view of mountains. It had to have a fireproof uh, roof. It had to have certain sized rooms. Uh, she, she knew exactly what she wanted. And, and, you know, we sort of knew this from, and we always agreed on it. And we, and we, we sort of knew what our lives would be like right down to today. If you are caring for a loved one with Alzheimer's, educate yourself. The Alzheimer's Society can help you prepare. Don't hesitate to seek support from friends and family. In short, reach out, just as Carol's family did. Lifespan is a production of WOUB Public Media. I'm Jackie Wolf, Professor Emeritus of Social Medicine at Ohio University and the executive producer and host of Lifespan. Adam Rich is our producer, audio engineer, and audio editor.